Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, I'm Nate Fisher and I'm part of the team that makes the World History YouTube channel Timeline. And this is our podcast, Timeline Tapes. Our channel is full of incredible documentaries and series all about the most fascinating parts of world history. But we know that sometimes you don't have the time to sit down and watch them. So we decided to turn some of these into podcasts so you can listen to them whenever and wherever you like. This episode is part of a series called Battles Won and Lost. In case you missed it, you can listen back to episode one by clicking on our feed and it looks into some of the most important moments from World War II, and just how victory was secured in these pivotal battles, and the personal stories within them. The show is voiced by Peter McCallum, but I'll be popping up as well along the way to guide you through. We start with Operation Barbarossa in 1941, as the Nazi forces launch an attack on the Soviet Union. We'll hear from historian Oleg Beda and Dr. David Stahl, author of Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East. It is one of the questions that puzzles people about the Second World War. Why did Hitler attack the Soviet Union? But the answer is fairly obvious, because he thought he could win. This was not just some war for him, this was the war for him. He said that the uh, enslavement of Slavic population, the, uh, this Lebensraum im Osten, uh, living space in the East, is uh, crucial for the German nation because we do not have any resources. He is aware that he is in a long war with the Western Allies. There's no real view to how that can be concluded. And then at the same time, if you're Hitler, you're looking at your great ideological enemy in the East, Bolshevism. So he thinks if I bring this forward and if I can destroy them in a short, sharp operation, I eliminate my last ideological rival in Europe and I am able to access all of the raw materials I need to go on fighting this conceived of global war. As Hitler said, this is a colossus uh, on clay feet. We will just have to kick in the door and the whole building falls down. Well, that never happened. The German assault on Russia, by every measure, was an astonishing success, until it stalled. From June 1941 until it was gripped by the Russian winter, the German offensive, Operation Barbarossa, was a long and victorious forward surge. And it was mighty. This is the largest invasion in history, and it is the single most important war Germany has in the Second World War. From the 22nd of June 1941, there is never less than 75% of the German army employed anywhere 
but fighting in the east. The invasion consisted of three million men, 600,000 vehicles, and about the same number of horses. It seems extraordinary that such an offensive could come as a surprise, but it did. Not to many people, but to the one who mattered. Joseph Stalin refused to believe that Germany would default on the non-aggression pact until the artillery opened fire. He believes also that before there's any kind of invasion of the Soviet Union, it will be first preempted by some kind of offer from Hitler. And since no offer has ever been made, he believes he's still got time. This is a fool's errand, and he is going to receive something like 90 warnings of this impending invasion, and he will dismiss all of them. The front, more than 2,000 kilometers of moving military, would extend to over 3,000 as the attack progressed. 151 German divisions moved. 40 divisions from Axis partners, including Finland, Romania, Italy, Hungary, Slovakia, and even a Spanish volunteer division completed the order of battle. The storm broke. Drang nach Osten, the thrust to the east, on June 22, 1941. These are some of the 180 million people against whom Hitler had just turned his war machine. And they fully understood what that meant. The same as for Britain and her other allies, blood, toil, tears and sweat. Soviet army groups were known as fronts. Seven fronts faced west. Three German army groups carried the main weight of the assault. Group North, von Lieb, Group Center, von Bock, and Group South, von Rundstedt. Soviet command and control was in disarray. Bridges were left intact. In 24 hours, spearhead armor units had pushed the front line 80 kilometers into Soviet territory. The German plan was not particularly original or unpredictable. Group North thrust for Leningrad, Group Center, with half the German armor, drove on Minsk, aiming for Moscow, and Group South pushed through the fertile Ukraine, which was the living space, the Lebensraum, that Hitler had promised the German people. The basic Barbarossa plan is predicated on border battles. They have set up the German army into what is essentially two armies. We have, on the one hand, panzer groups. Mobile, highly maneuverable, very aggressive, given the lion's share of the logistic and Luftwaffe support. And then we have the rest of the German army. The objectives of the panzer groups are to break through the Soviet front, to enact large-scale encirclements, and then crush those Soviet armies defending the border. This is the Western military districts with some 2.7 million men. And the idea is, if we destroy that number of men and all the associated equipment with it, we must be able then to just advance into the rest of the country. Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army led the charge out of Army Group Center in front of the Bryansk Front, Marshal Yeremenko. The force split. Units swung north to meet 3rd Panzer Army units, General Hoth hooking south. The maneuver encircled Soviet troops and formed the Bialystok and Minsk pockets. 
trapping the 3rd and 10th Armies, which surrendered on June 30th. This was blitzkrieg at its best. The world gave Russia another six weeks. 290,000 prisoners, 2,500 tanks, and 1,500 guns fell into German hands. Third and second Panzer Army units pressed on in a parallel advance that encircled an even larger force, creating the Smolensk pocket, which held out until August 9th, 310,000 prisoners. First Panzer Army and the 11th Army, both from Army Group South, had meanwhile surged together, crossing the River Bug and creating the Uman pocket, which fell on August 8th, 100,000 prisoners. The advance was remorseless. When Kiev fell on September 19th, 600,000 prisoners, 2,500 tanks, and 1,000 guns fell into German hands. And Guderian could now rejoin Group Center in the drive on Moscow. By the beginning of December, these victorious battles had seen almost two million Soviet soldiers taken into captivity, their armor and their air fleet destroyed. Part of the secret to German success in 1941 is not their superior operational capabilities, it's the fact that the Soviets are themselves making catastrophic mistakes. So for example, we have these two battles at the beginning. We have the Battle of Minsk, and we have the Battle of Smolensk, and these are crushing defeats for the Soviets. But they are costly to the Germans. They are costly to the Germans in the single most important area. Germany and her allies had lost, dead, wounded, or missing, almost 400,000 men, and 40% of her armor. That means the one thing that the German army has to end the war in the East, the panzer groups, are suffering so many losses as to preclude the possibility of enacting the single thing they must do. They can win battles, they can seize ground, they can capture prisoners of war, but they can't break Soviet resistance. The determination of the Russian soldier to defend his homeland never faltered. The immense resources of the great land empire meant that despite huge losses, the number of Red Army divisions increased, and a new general took over command of the front. His name was Georgi Zhukov. The result? The Germans conquered land and lost the campaign. For the Russian tactics kept the main bulk of their armies intact and made a long war inevitable instead of that quick decision the Germans sought. Barbarossa was planned to be a quick war. But the truth is that the Germans could never reach what they had in mind. So that meant that they're trapped in the east. The German schedule had slipped because infantry could not keep pace with the tanks. And vehicles could not advance as they wished on the bad Russian roads. Now winter joined the battle. The chance of victory had passed. It's time for our second battle, the Battle of the Coral Sea in 1942. Our experts on this one are historian Gregory Blake and Vice Admiral Peter Jones from the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society. Every battle is both a victory and a defeat. 
In a way, the Battle of the Coral Sea was different. It was a battle that both sides could argue they had won. The Japanese by pointing out that the American fleet had been forced to retire. The Americans by observing that the battle had forced Japan to indefinitely postpone its proposed invasion of New Guinea. It was also a battle that is indelibly written into the history of naval warfare. The first battle between carriers. The aircraft carrier, kingpin of the Pacific Naval War. A war in which aircraft, whether land-based or carrier-borne, have dominated the sea. The Dutch East Indies had surrendered on March 9th, the day after the first Japanese troops had landed on New Guinea. Their intention of reaching the capital, Port Moresby, overland had been frustrated by stubborn Australian resistance. Japanese success in their advance on Port Moresby would have brought the war right up to, and almost certainly into, Australia. So these boys who have beaten the Japs and driven them right back across the mountains and down to Buna have done very well indeed. Intercepted Japanese cables made it clear that the plan was now to take Moresby from the sea, sailing from Rabaul to approach the target from the south. They had broken the Japanese codes. They knew the Japanese were moving towards Port Moresby. They knew the intention was to capture Port Moresby and they knew that the Japanese transport ships would be accompanied by carriers. They didn't know how many, they didn't know which carriers, but they rightly assumed that the Japanese wouldn't just send transport ships unescorted. And the Americans moved to counter that by shifting carriers of their own into the area. Admiral Frank J. Fletcher, flying his flag aboard the carrier Yorktown, was ordered by the man with overall command of the Pacific Theatre, Admiral Chester Nimitz, to rendezvous with the carrier Lexington and assume command of both carriers and their task forces. Nimitz had a much smaller fleet than the enemy and he was determined to use it. Where? The Coral Sea. The rendezvous happened on May 1st, 1942. On May the 4th, the Port Moresby invasion force sailed from Rabaul. The main Japanese strike force, assembled round the carriers Shokaku and Zuikaku, entered the Coral Sea on May 5th, sailing towards the invasion fleet, whose escort included the carrier Shoho. Warfare with which no one was familiar, for no one had experienced it, now entered the pages of military history. One of the important things in the pre-war period was the Americans had really throughout the 1930s done a lot of experimentation at sea with their carrier aircraft and their aircraft carriers to really understand the capabilities that they could unleash. And they had developed techniques for long-range surveillance, long-range attack. This was mirrored to a lesser extent by the Japanese as well, so that was an important element. Battle of the Coral Sea is a battle that contains a lot of firsts in terms of it was the first battle where ships hadn't seen each other in the conduct of that battle. Though shipborne radar could register incoming aircraft, it was not effective in scanning distances across the sea. 
Without such projected vision or any of the other technologies of today to reveal the position and purpose of an opposing fleet, both Japanese and American forces were obliged to rely on reconnaissance aircraft spotting the quarry and reporting its position. It's a vast area. They had very limited reconnaissance ability. It was basically aircraft searching for the enemy. And then when you've worked out where they were, having the available resources to strike at them. This was before the days of GPS. So the aircraft was estimating positions. Cloud cover could obscure formations. The weather was worsening. Apparently flying in concentrated formation on a general bearing line, it appears the Japanese planes on their outward flight passed over the Allied carriers without seeing them. B-17s flying out of Australia located Shoho on the 6th but failed to hit their target. But the sighting was enough to convince Fletcher that the invasion fleet was making for the Jomad Passage, a channel between New Guinea and the small Louisiade archipelago. He set course. Admiral Inouye, in overall command of the Japanese 4th Fleet, countered by ordering the invasion force to turn away from the Jomad Passage until Admiral Takagi's strike force could deal with Fletcher. On May 7th, aircraft from Takagi's strike force scored the first hit, crippling the oiler Neosho. Fletcher sent a mixed American-Australian cruiser squadron to meet the invasion fleet at the passage, which distracted Inouye from what Fletcher was doing with his carriers. Aircraft from one of them, Lexington, spotted the carrier Shoho and sank her. Late in the afternoon, Japanese aircraft launched against the American carriers, but failed to find them. On their return, they were attacked by TF-17 and were shot down. 27 went on the sortie, only six returned. By midnight, Inui's situation, one carrier sunk, more than 20 aircraft lost, forced him to postpone the invasion for two days. On the morning of the 8th, the decisive phase of the battle arrived. The two carrier forces located each other within six minutes. The US reporting the Japanese at 0815, the Japanese sighting their enemy at 0822. The thing to bear in mind about the Battle of the Coral Sea was that both admirals were faced with often the requirement to make a split-second decision about when to launch a carrier strike package, in which direction and so on. Really on the base of incomplete information, incomplete data about where the location is and composition. The first American attack was launched just before 11 and succeeded in the first wave in damaging Shokaku, which, unable to launch or recover her planes, was forced to withdraw. The Japanese attack on Lexington and Yorktown went in about 20 minutes after the Americans had first launched. Japanese aircraft located and torpedoed the Lexington, which was forced to withdraw and was later abandoned. Admiral Sherman was reported to be the last man to leave the Lexington before she sank. Our country can well be proud of the performance of the officers and men of the Lexington. This is an air war, and there's nothing that will stop a determined air attack. 
The traditions of the Lexington will live on. She was a grand ship. Those of our men who failed to return, the world will not forget. At the end of the battle, the Americans had lost the Lexington, had the Yorktown damaged, and so Admiral Fletcher signaled to General MacArthur that he had to withdraw. At the same time, the Japanese, which had lost one small carrier and another damaged, had decided to do exactly the same thing. In many respects, that could be seen as a draw, but it was firmly a victory for the Americans. For the first time, the Japanese juggernaut had been stopped, and that was a huge thing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. The next battle we're looking at is the first Arakan Offensive from 1942, featuring the voice of historian and author Dr. Peter Peterson. On the 20th of January, 1942, Japanese troops entering from neutral and then forcibly allied Thailand invaded Burma, now Myanmar, which was part of the British Empire and stood on the road to that empire's brightest jewel, India. By May 20th, British forces had been pushed back across the border into India. And nationalist Chinese troops operating in support of the British had withdrawn across their frontier. The British retreat was agonizing. It was carried out over hundreds of miles of largely difficult terrain in often terrible weather on roads clogged with hordes of refugees. And most of the equipment had to be left behind. So at the end of 1942, which is the eve of the Arakan campaign, the Japanese are occupying most of Burma. The Japanese would continue to occupy Burma until August 1945. And this first offensive, the Arakan offensive, would not turn the tide. This was a battle that the Japanese won. War report from Burma. 
where after a fresh Japanese attack, our troops have been grimly holding on to their new positions on the Arakan front. War on the Arakan front is on a comparatively small scale at present, and it may not assume bigger proportions till after the monsoon, but it's of very great importance just the same. The 14th Indian Division, the longest serving unit of any in the British Army in the entire war, would advance into the Arakan, now Rakhine State, across the border with India. This was principally diversionary. The main attack would be an amphibious assault on ICAP. But no sooner had they started to prepare for the plan, they had to abandon it. There were not enough landing craft. While the British developed a new strategy, the Japanese abandoned theirs. They had been instructed by Tokyo to prepare a three-pronged advance into India, but consideration of the terrain and their resources caused them to reject the order. By November, General Irwin, commanding the British forces, had a new plan. He had built up a supply depot at Cox's Bazaar, from which the Indian 14th was to advance down the thinly defended Mayu Peninsula. What he wanted to do was carry out a limited advance of about 150 kilometres down the Mayu Peninsula to the island of Akyab in the coastal province of Arakan, which abutted India, and therefore the lines of communication would be short for the British and long for the Japanese. Akyab was important because there was an airfield there from which British bombers could reach Rangoon and that figured in British plans for the reconquest of Burma. Rain held up the start of the offensive, and the 14th did not begin its advance until mid-December, three months after the first proposed start date. The Japanese fell back to a defensive position, the Mangdor-Butidong line. It fell after only a day, and the Indian division advanced in two columns, one brigade following the east bank of the Mayu River. This brigade was checked at Ratedong, and across the mouth of the Mayu, assaults on Dunbaik were similarly repulsed. Here, the attackers encountered a well-prepared defence with bunkers that withstood mortar and artillery fire. The British called up tanks to deal with the bunkers, but the Japanese knew that their 55th Division was en route to reinforce and relieve them. Attacks, supported by the newly arrived tanks, went in at the start of February. But these failed in the face of stubborn defence that held on until the new troops entered the battle. The Japanese 55th, under General Roga, began its attack on March 7th, first targeting the brigade facing Ratadong, which was obliged to retire. The 55th, crossed the Mayu on March 24th and was now pressing on all elements of the British force which began to pull back. Another dispiriting retreat in which a lot of the equipment had to be left behind. And this Arakan offensive, which was intended in part to raise morale after the catastrophic retreat in 1942 from Burma, really didn't do anything at all. If anything, morale plummeted further. On April 15th, the man who would ultimately lead his troops to victory in Burma, Bill Slim, assumed command of all troops in the Arakan. The Japanese is a tough enemy, and much must be done before he will admit defeat. By mid-May, the Mangdor-Butidong line was back in Japanese hands, and shortly afterwards, the British were virtually back at their start points. The campaign cost the British about 5,000 men, the Japanese about 3,000, but a lot of those 
were lost to disease. It showed the need for better training and above all, the need to create esprit, morale, a sense of optimism and confidence. And these things happen in large part when General Slim takes over what is the 14th Army in August 1943. Arakan may have been a failed campaign, but the appointment of Slim and reorganisation of the army that resulted would finally turn the tide, removing the Japanese threat to India and ultimately driving them out of Burma. Next, we'll look into Rommel's offensives from 1942. Our leading voice will be Dr. Garth Pratton from the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at Australian National University. With huge forces involved on the Eastern Front after Barbarossa, it is easy to class the fighting in North Africa as a sideshow. It was not. Control of the North African littoral meant control of the Mediterranean, and ultimately the Suez Canal, the Persian Gulf, and oil. At the beginning of 1942, in order to secure this important asset, Erwin Rommel was on the move. On January 19th, two transports had landed 45 tanks at Benghazi. This gave him almost 230 tanks. He was facing 150 British, but as usual, British armor was widely dispersed. The 4th Indian was holding Benghazi, which Rommel had evacuated as soon as the freighter had unloaded, and the British 7th Armoured was refitting in Tobruk. Rommel was falling back on his supply lines, so as he withdrew, his ability to supply himself got better, that his forces were reinforced, and so once he felt himself there, then able to recommence the offensive, the British were not in a particularly strong position. They now were at the far end of their own supply line. Their forces were strung out. The overall position for the British forces in North Africa was quite weak. The war in the desert has been a heartbreaking business for commander and troops. The end of the story remains yet to be told. On January 21st, Rommel attacked. He had three Africa Corps and seven Italian divisions. Mersa Brega quickly fell to the 21st Panzer Division, with 15th Panzer on its right sweeping the British out of Wadi Fareg. The two divisions converged on Agadabia, which fell on the 22nd with part of the British 1st Armoured trapped at Antalat and losing 70 of its tanks. By the 25th, the offensive had taken Misus and 1st Armoured had lost more tanks. Rommel now turned towards Benghazi. On the 27th of January, Rommel ordered part of his force to hook towards Makili. British forces countered by moving forces to support Makili. But Rommel's action had been a feint which the British had swallowed, exposing Benghazi. At the time, Rommel served in some ways as an excuse for the British forces. Why are we getting defeated? It's because we're fighting a Superman, not because our tactics are poor, our equipment's poor, our leadership hasn't quite got its act together. 
Benghazi fell on the 29th, the Indian 4th doing well to extricate itself from the trap and take part in the withdrawal to the Ghazala line that those involved dubbed the Ghazala Gallop. The 8th Army developed a strong defensive position at the Ghazala line where Rommel, almost out of fuel and now facing the British in numbers, called a halt. Rommel's dash, his tactics, his self-belief had produced a smashing victory. The German forces were again rampant. The British had been forced to fall back and Rommel now was reinforced had greater strength than he had previously. And there's almost a sense of desperation in some regard. But a new British commander, General Montgomery, did not panic. Rommel's dash had cost him dearly in material and fuel. And when Montgomery, with substantially built up forces, launched his offensive, it was clear that the balance in North Africa had tipped decisively. Moving on from North Africa, it's time to look at the invasion of Sicily in 1943. Montgomery launched his offensive in North Africa in October, and the first American troops landed there in November. When the two forces linked, North Africa was secured, and Allied planning turned to the European continent. I cannot go farther today than to say that it is very probable there will be heavy fighting in the Mediterranean and elsewhere before the leaves of autumn fall. At the Casablanca conference, it was decided to take Sicily before advancing on to the Italian peninsula and further on to the mainland of Europe. It was to be called Operation Husky. It was agreed that two armies, Patton's US 7th and Montgomery's British 8th, under Eisenhower as supreme commander, would land side by side on the south and southeast coasts of Sicily. The island was defended by the Italian 6th Army under General Guzzoni. The 6th included two crack German divisions, a garrison of 230,000 men to be opposed by 115,000 British and Empire and 66,000 American troops. In the original landings in North Africa, more than 500 transports were convoyed. For the invasion of Sicily, the number is unknown, but the landing craft were on time to the minute. On the 10th of July, troops began to land. British forces along the southeastern corner of the island, and west of them, on the southern coast, the Americans. The landings were preceded by an airborne force, but that went poorly with parachute troops scattered and unable to consolidate positions. And those of the Glider Force 69, released too soon, fell into the sea. The amphibious landings went well, partly because Guzzoni planned to allow the landings, draw the invaders into Sicily's difficult terrain, and then counterattack. While some men waded ashore, others had the pleasure of landing in ducks. Ducks, of course, are the famous amphibians, half landing craft, half lorry. The American 1st and 45th came under counterattack from a force that included the Hermann Goering Panzer Division. But beat this off, and the move inland began. 
the British were to move up the east coast for Messina to cut off Axis retreat. Patton would move west and north, protecting Montgomery's flank. But the advance through the island turned into an undeclared race between the two forces to be first to reach Messina. By the 23rd, Patton had reached Masala on the western point of the island and was driving for the capital, Palermo, which fell the same day. Town after town had quickly fallen, not only to the 8th, but to the Canadians and the Americans on the left flank as well. The overrunning of Sicily was rapidly becoming an accomplished fact. Two days after the fall of Palermo, the fascist Grand Council in Rome arrested Il Duce Benito Mussolini, who had been leading Italy since 1922. German paratroops rescued him from captivity in Italy, and a German plane flew him to Hitler's headquarters. The main weight of Axis resistance was now being felt in the east as the defenders became compressed, falling back on Messina and escaping to the mainland. On August 3rd, Italian formations began their evacuation. The German divisions being deployed as the rear guard in front of Messina. American forces now executed two hooking operations to leapfrog along the north coast. After the second, on August 11th, the Germans began to embark from Messina. British troops had by now bypassed Mount Etna and were also closing on the vital port. American troops entered Messina on August 17th. It had taken a little over five weeks for the island to fall, and that was a battle won. Hitler, in response to Mussolini's fall, had ordered new divisions into northern Italy, and joining them in the fight for the peninsula would be the divisions from Sicily. For by the time the Americans entered Messina, the town was empty of enemy troops. They had escaped, and that too was a sort of victory. Well, finally, let's look across with the Allied troops to Italy. The German so-called Dunkirk was made across only two or three miles of sea. By the same token, that's all that separates our forces in Sicily from Axis mainland. A point worth noting by the Axis. Now for our last battle, we look into perhaps one of the most famous of all, the Normandy landings in 1944. We'll hear from Rear Admiral James Goldrick from the Royal Australian Navy, as well as Joe Ruggiero and Henry Sanchez from the US Navy. There have been countless battles, but those in the category of truly decisive are relatively few. Those that can be said to have held history on the battlefield and watched it pivot on the outcome. By 1944, the Axis powers, so manifestly unable to compete with the industrial output and manpower resources of the Allies, were bound to lose the war. But how and when they lost was in dispute. Planning for the Second Front had been underway since April 1943. The Germans were waiting and the Allies were trying to be sure that they had the resources and they could achieve the surprise they needed. The big question for both sides was where were they going to land and how are the Germans going to deal with the landing? 
Yes, these are the principal Allied leaders responsible for planning and directing that grand assault by British and American forces, which everyone hopes may prove to be the knockout blow. Their work involved masses of men and material and depended on secrecy. All sorts of deceptions were employed to encourage German belief that the invasion would attack the Channel ports or the Somme estuary. For every bomb dropped on Normandy, three were dropped elsewhere. There were more than one choice for the landings in France. Normandy, in fact, wasn't the nearest place to the United Kingdom ports, but it had certain advantages. The peninsula was viewed as being something that could be taken over. There was the port of Cherbourg, which was viewed as being potentially uh, able to be used as a, a major port for bringing in supplies. So it was a whole raft of factors which combined to make it the best place to go. The greater part of the south coast region of England, to a depth of 16 kilometers, was declared a military zone. Villages were evacuated, and the assault formations practiced for the invasion. This is just one incident in recent United States Army invasion exercises. Stern preparations for the grand assault upon Europe. Behind them, the follow-up assault forces were encamped. We were just waiting, loading and unloading. When we started to load tanks, it's when we said, mm-mm, uh, this is it. There wasn't anything mentioned as far as uh, uh, going for an invasion, but there was a lot of ships. Eisenhower, in supreme command, had an Anglo-American team of meteorologists to advise him, and they warned against the 5th of June, the original date, but gave the go-ahead for the 6th. So Eisenhower gave the order for the invasion. The order was headed, the tide has turned. I hope to God, Eisenhower said, I know what I'm doing. Facing the invasion in overall command was von Rundstedt. In command of the forces opposing the landing, Army Group B was Erwin Rommel. Though on D-Day itself, Rommel was absent on leave. It was his wife's birthday. The Germans had less tanks for the defense of France in 1944 than they had marshaled for its conquest in 1940. But they had the fortified Atlantic Wall, which had been Hitler's idea, and which extended over 2,000 kilometers and boasted 12,000 bunkers. Rommel and von Rundstedt disagreed about how to use these emplacements. Nobody knows who won the argument, but we do know the result. The invasion armada comprised 700 warships. Their role was both air defense and shore bombardment. 2,700 ships supported the landing. They carried the supplies, the reinforcements, and the infrastructure that would make the landing sustainable. Above them, the Allied air forces flew thousands of aircraft. The operational radius of the Spitfire had been a decisive factor in picking the landing zone. The Germans could meet the Allied aircraft with only 170 serviceable machines. If you have air superiority and you're conducting a battle on land, 
you have a tremendous advantage over your opponent. Twenty-first Army Group, General Montgomery, sailed from ports along the British coast, assembling an immense armada from departure points scattered from Cardiff in the west to Felixstowe in the east. 5,000 ships all gathering together to make the invasion into Normandy. It was a sight to see, you know, on a horizon seeing all these ships. They look like little dots getting bigger and bigger and then merging into Normandy Beach. The invaders landed on a 90-kilometer-plus stretch of five beaches along the Normandy coast. The US First Army, General Bradley, landing on Utah and Omaha beaches. The British Second Army, General Dempsey, landing on Gold, Juneau, and Sword. The US 82nd and 101st Airborne landed behind Utah, the British 6th Airborne behind Sword, to guard the exposed eastern flank of the British. It was calculated that of the airborne troops dropped on the night of June 6th, up to 75% landing at the wrong locations took no part in the early fighting. The lesson was driven home that more navigation aids were badly needed, that gliders must be landed at slow speeds, that some type of air brake was necessary to decrease the rate of descent of gliders going into small fields. The Germans, in anticipation of an airborne landing, had flooded fields into which the paratroopers splashed. Rommel had 34 divisions opposing the landing, but many were facing the wrong way. Most were under strength, and some were feeble units, comprising exclusively men with stomach complaints. From dawn, five Allied divisions came ashore. The first, the US 4th Infantry Division, landed 1,800 meters from its target due to a strong current, but fortuitously, that swept it to a weakly defended position. The 4th landed 23,000 men on D-Day and took only 197 casualties. It was a different story on Omaha. And we couldn't hit Omaha Beach in its entirety. So we had to lower the ramp as much as we can, and everybody had to go into the water. A lot of the people with gear went down, and some of them perished. Omaha Beach was dominated by cliffs, from which for much of the day, the US 1st and 29th Divisions were pinned by intense fire. The swimming tanks had been launched prematurely, and many foundered and were swamped, leaving the infantry without cover. By day's end, 55,000 had been landed, but at a cost of more than 4,600 casualties. The third beach left to right was Gold, where the British 50th Division landed, supported by the 8th Armoured Brigade. 3rd Canadian Division landed on Juneau, where it met particular difficulty with underwater obstacles and rough water. 
By nightfall, it had made contact with the British 50th on its right. The final beach was Sword, where the British 3rd Division landed successfully. The perhaps inevitable general confusion, the mass of men and machines, and the contrasting levels of success created an opportunity for the defenders, initially wrong-footed and slow to respond, to redeploy. The Germans were caught by surprise by the actual timing of the attack, and bear in mind that they weren't sure where the Allies would come ashore, or whether they would let the Allies come ashore in sufficient numbers, and then attempt to have a mass attack, particularly using their uh, concentrated armour. The 21st Panzer Division took a firm grip on Kahn, denying it to the Allies for whom it had been a D-Day objective. As June 6th wore on, units began to extend the perimeter away from the beaches, short, and in some places well short, of the proposed target line, but beginning to move into the villages on or behind the coast. The advance continues. It means hard fighting, as the Germans are desperately trying to delay the advance while they bring up adequate reinforcements. Every day brings news of fresh Nazi troop concentrations, but every day our strength is being built up too. This is only a beginning. It was late afternoon before Hitler gave permission for the deployment of two panzer divisions that had been held in reserve. At the end of June the 6th, he was still not fully convinced that the Normandy landing was the real invasion rather than a feint. But it was no feint. Within 24 hours, it was clear that they had got ashore, got far enough inland, consolidated sufficiently that they had a basis to keep going. The battle was not yet won, but it was beyond doubt a battle that could not now be lost. D-Day meant that the Germans' days were absolutely numbered. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. In our next episode, we continue our look into the battles won and lost in World War II. You can head to our YouTube channel if you can't wait to get more history documentaries, where we've got tons of world history documentaries for you to enjoy. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and write a review too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.